Hymn number 313. We've been asked to mark, certainly delighted to do that and use that at the appropriate time in the service. The song service is always so uplifting and encouraging. It is a fantastic thing. We can blend our voices together in beautiful harmony, making melody in our heart to the Lord in the words of Ephesians 519. And certainly as we're assembled together today, that's one of the great blessings of being able to come together to worship our Heavenly Father in spirit and in truth. As was mentioned earlier, we certainly are delighted and thankful for the presence of each and every individual. We hope that we can each certainly say it has been well for us to be here. And certainly as we give thought to the lesson this morning, I hope that it can also be an encouragement to us to make a distinction between what the world so often tries to tell us and what the Word of God in marvelous truth and majesty sets before us. As you can see on the wall to my left, the title is but one word this morning, Antichrist. That prefix anti means against. And the word Christ, of course, has reference to that marvelous and blessed Son of God and thus the Antichrist, a subject that seems so often to be of interest, that seems so often to prevail among the descriptions religiously in the world about us will be the topic of our time together this morning, at least during the lesson. On this opening slide, there are many considerations that it seems to me are worthwhile to make a brief comment. If you watch much religious television, if you make reference to many religious-oriented books at all, I think we're each well aware that the Antichrist is a sensational topic. It is one about which many people have written books and they often skyrocket near the top of the New York Times bestseller list. These particular books often are rather fanciful in their prescription and they describe many things and human beings tend to gravitate, it seems, to these descriptions. Some of the things perhaps are this. It is not only a topic of great interest. It's not only a topic that captivates. It's a topic that generates much discussion and people clamor, it seems, for it. After all, the end of the world, the end of time, is something about which the human family seems to be so interested. And every time somebody writes something about it, regardless whether there's any truth in it or not, people seem to accept it, and they seem to take it as the truth. I think today, as we study a little bit about the Antichrist, the topic, the definition I've put up there, it seems to me to do the best and fairest of justice to the modern consideration of it. The Antichrist is typically portrayed as the embodiment of evil in such a way that it supposedly, this person, will reign in a significant fashion shortly before Jesus comes again and therefore shortly before the final judgment. Now again, that's typically the way the world considers it. I think as you and I will find, there isn't much truth in that statement. After all, the Bible is our only source of inspired information and the only source of true facts on this matter as well as others. For that matter, let's look somewhat more in detail at the claims that the modern world makes relative to the Antichrist. Now please again accept these are the claims that the world makes. They are not biblically true. These claims perhaps begin like this. Supposedly, there will come a very prominent, a very powerful, a very smooth and eloquent worldwide military leader 
This individual will be able to speak in such a way people will naturally follow. He will have bright ideas to solve the world's problems, so we're told. Problems related to economy, problems related to military, problems related to various descriptions and difficulties between people. This person will be a natural-born leader, so we are told. He will be effective, he will be eloquent, and he will naturally have many, many to follow him. His charisma will be evident. He will be able to lead in a very natural fashion, so we are told. And when he rises, he will first make many statements that lead people to think he has their best interest at heart. He will speak things that sound good. He will talk about matters that truly seem to help the world and all the economies thereof. However, as you can see on that slide, that trust placed in Him will soon be betrayed. During your lifetime and mine, there have been many individuals who at one time or another have been referred to as the Antichrist. People were just sure that these men at some point were going to be the very embodiment of this evil and that they would be the Antichrist. I've listed at least most of the ones I could remember for myself and think of. Joseph Stalin, the well-known Russian imperial leader, he at one point, many thought, would develop into what would become the Antichrist. Beyond Joseph Stalin, the Italian leader during the Second World War, Benito Mussolini, even he was referred to by some as the Antichrist. As you can see beyond them, Adolf Hitler. Perhaps nothing more needs to be said relative to all of our knowledge of him. As you think about him as well as Nikita Khrushchev, another one of the well-known Russian monarchs and leaders, all of these at one time or another was recognized, thought to be, the development and embodiment of what would be the Antichrist. As you can see, I've listed some more. The Cuban leader, Fidel Castro, he's been on the throne there for so many years now, but even he, by many, was regarded and recognized as the one that would develop into and become the Antichrist. Oddly enough, the American Secretary of State from 1973 to 1977, Henry Kissinger, Many felt was going to be the Antichrist. Beyond that listing, George Bush, our recent American president. Maybe there are still some who disagree with his political ideology would think him so, but many considered him the Antichrist. William Clinton, another one of our recent American presidents. The current prince in England, Prince William, some have called to be the coming Antichrist. Maybe the last one, our current American president. Given his suave and persuasive and eloquent ways, some have felt is the Antichrist. I say all of that to say that as you can tell, many individuals across the decades have been rather sure that many individuals were, many of them are now dead. They were not the Antichrist. And in fact, none of them there per se in what the Bible describes it would be regarded as this Antichrist. Having said all of that, perhaps it's fair to say that this Antichrist, I mentioned a moment ago, would be also one that's a betrayer. In the sense, after getting the attention and leading people, it would be recognized finally, though, that he was opposed to the cause of Christ. 
He would be the very embodiment, if you please, of the devil himself, and he would lead the peoples in a mass kind of war opposed to the nature and cause of the kingdom of God. As such, we appreciate too some of the other things that he supposedly, once this particular character is realized, he will put in place a worldwide credit system, financial and monetary in character, and one of the key elements in it will be the mark of the beast from Revelation 13, 18, the number 666. All of these things we are told. Finally, His power will only be defeated with the coming of the Christ Himself. And supposedly at that battle of Armageddon mentioned only in Revelation 16, 16, this one, this mighty embodiment of evil will Himself be defeated ultimately and finally. All of that sounds like a marvelous story. And again, many, many books have been written about it. But as you can see at the bottom of that slide, the critical question is, is it true? Are the features and aspects and facets of it, is it true? Well, we've already learned based on many of those names that we have every right to be skeptical and every right to be suspicious. And so it is at the bottom of that slide... A few verses that one could study in some detail, but time will not permit us to do that today. We could give thought to the 7th through the 11th chapters of Daniel. We could turn our attention to the statements of 2 Thessalonians 2 and even highlight the nature of Revelation 13. Our subject, though, in terms of the Antichrist, need not point us directly in those directions. For Brother Joy read for us this morning from 1 John chapter 2. I would invite you to go with me for the next few moments on a rather interesting journey through the writings of the Apostle John and give some thought to the Antichrist as John portrays it, as he describes it. And isn't it true that the inspired New Testament writings ought to be the source of our information? It is that that should identify and define for us what and who and what is the nature of this Antichrist. The word Antichrist occurs only five times in the New Testament, either in English or in Greek. Those five occurrences are all in the writings of the Apostle John. 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 and 19, 1 John chapter 4, verse 3, and 2 John chapter, or one chapter book, verse number 7. All of these highlight for us the only locations in which this word itself is found. As you can see there also at the top, we will appreciate rather readily that this Antichrist, as the name suggests, is opposed to Christ. It is opposed to the nature and character of the development and revelation of God. However, in what way is that opposition expressed? And in what way is that opposition presented? You'll notice it's now our interest to look at several things we can notice based on these passages. I would again invite you to read with me verse, verse number 18 of 1 John 2. Let's read this verse and the one that follows it and make our initial comments. Little children, it is the last time. And as ye have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now are there many Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out, 
that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. Twice in that passage, this word antichrist has been used, once in the singular and once in the plural. Our first comment by the very nature of John's inspired writing then, based on the first part of verse 18, should be this. It is the last time, and as you have heard, that Antichrist shall come. Even now are there many Antichrists. Our initial lesson surely must be this. John told us expressly when this Antichrist was to appear. He said it's the last time, it's the last hour, and therefore it's the appropriate time. It is this auspicious time, if you will, when the Antichrist shall appear. And thus, our first lesson, the Antichrist, according to the writings of John and the revelation of God, was to appear in the last days. That phrase, the last days, takes on a very keen and marvelous interest in the New Testament, doesn't it? Let's develop that point in the following way. Some may ask, and in fact, as you'll notice, many think that this word, this phrase, the last days, refers to a very short interval of time, right near when time ends, right near when the Lord supposedly comes back. But the problem is the New Testament, as it defines the phrase, the last days, does not define it that way. In fact, here's the way we know that. This phrase, the last days, is very carefully identified and defined by the New Testament writers in texts like these. Let's begin in the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 2, verse number 2, that great writer of old very clearly and powerfully said, The mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains, and all nations shall flow unto it. That being, of course, the law would go forth from Jerusalem. But the very first phrase in that verse, the very first statement that's made is this, and it shall come to pass in the last days. You and I thus notice there is a clear prophecy. Something was to happen in the last days. We notice as that chapter, that particular verse proceeds, it says the mountain of the Lord's house would be established. If you and I can ascertain, if we can discover when it was that the mountain of the Lord's house was established, then we will know for certain that the last days had begun by that time. Thankfully, that mountain of the Lord's house is later described to us as the church. In 1 Timothy 3 verse 15, the inspired apostle there said, But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And thus we learn that the church is the house of God. But yet Isaiah had been told that the house of God would be established in the last days. The church was established in the language of Acts chapter 2, wasn't it? That church, that powerful and great kingdom of God which would never be destroyed. Daniel chapter 2 verse 44. It was established in the last days. Isn't it true that in light of those things, we can look at one final statement? Peter on the day of Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, verse 17, he quoted the book of Joel in the Old Testament. He quoted Joel chapter 2, verses 28 to 32, and expressly said, as Joel had said, these prophecies, this outpouring of the Holy Spirit, was to take place afterward. 
When Peter quoted it, he said, This is that that was spoken of by the prophet Joel, and the last days obviously had now come. For that's the language that Peter used. The last days started. You and I have can then appreciate that these last days have been ongoing now for about 2,000 years. These last days have been underway for 20 centuries or more. These last days, you see, are something that's been in place a long, long time. We shouldn't thus think that these fanciful writers that speak about an Antichrist in those days right before the second coming of Christ, well, that'll be the last days, but we've already been in the last days now for a long time. As you can also see at the bottom of that slide, 1 John 4 verse 3 goes on to amplify that understanding like this. And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist whereof ye have heard that it should come, and even now already is it in the world. John even assisted us so clearly as that verse ended. He said, you have heard that this spirit of Antichrist is coming. But John was quick to say, it's already here. When John wrote this book centuries ago, this Antichrist, thus we're beginning to see piece by piece, what man says seems to have little resemblance to what the New Testament describes. But there's more that you and I can conclude as well. Our second lesson is this one. Isn't it interesting that John expressly makes reference to the fact that there are many antichrists? 1 John 2.18 still says, Even now are there many antichrists. Again, the human character seems to describe a single individual, one man who has such a great power to lead the world and to lead people, John said, there's not just one man. There are many antichrists, and they're even active and alive and well in his day. One more feature, one more aspect, seemingly has fallen completely to the ground and crumbled. Look at some of the other statements about the number of these antichrists. You'll notice that word itself is plural in verse 18. In Greek, that word antichrist, as it occurs second in that verse, is plural. And you'll notice that a plural pronoun in verse 19 is used. They went out from us. Who, John, went out from you, those antichrists? Thus, you and I need not think that there is one particularly special, noteworthy military leader that will occupy the position and role of a so-called antichrist. Those antichrists were active in John's day. They were destructive of much evil to the cause of Christ in John's day. As we move forward in our lesson, we've thus learned to this point these two things. First, they were to appear in the last days. Secondly, there were many of them. But as you can see, that does help us note again how different it is to see the foolishness of men who believe in this so-called description of a human antichrist as men would send it forth, as it stands opposed to what the Bible teaches concerning this. Lesson number three is this one. What else does John tell us about these antichrists from verse 19? It says, "...they went out from us, but they were not of us." That's an interesting description, isn't it? 
Here we come face to face yet again with these antichrists. They were originally disciples of the Lord. They were originally apparently faithful workers in regard to the kingdom, but the time came they went out from us, John said. The time came that despite the fact they had once been of us, they were no longer true to the doctrine of truth. They were no longer given to the relationship of all that the New Testament had set forth. They were no longer true to the Christ. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. John says they were with us. They were numbered amongst the disciples. But then the time came they accepted what was not true. And they began to teach this. Doesn't that highlight as much as any other passage how powerful is the truth of God and how that you and I can appreciate men can be led astray. Individuals can accept what is not true and teach what the Bible does not authorize. And as such, they have left the truth of God. This, we read, occurred in the first century. They were still living in that day and time when there were still apostles around, like John and like Paul and others. But yet, they chose to turn their back on the truth revealed from the greatness of heaven and began to believe and to teach what God had never revealed and authorized. And as they did so, John says, they went out from us. But they were not of us. They didn't go forth teaching the truth like Paul did on those missionary journeys in the book of Acts. They went forth deceiving men, teaching what the word antichrist suggests, that which is against Christ. Isn't that an amazing description? Doesn't that forewarn us again about the care with which we must appreciate the doctrine of God today? For if we depart from it, we will be in no better position than those antichrists of 20 centuries ago. These antichrists, as you can see on this slide, are such that this was a choice they made. Notice the language says they went out from us. They weren't forced to leave. They made their choice about doctrine and about the way in which they'd live, but it was doctrine opposed to what God had revealed. And so they went out from us. That highlights again the power of human choice, doesn't it? All of us stand as free moral agents before the God of heaven. We will make our choice, but let it be assured that we will have to give answer on that day of judgment for the choice we made. They went out from us. Consider how frightful it shall be on that day of judgment for these antichrists to stand before God and to stand before the very one whom their name says they're against, Antichrist, and Him serve as their judge, and yet they went out from Him. They didn't teach His truth. They deceived and misled countless individuals into eternal perdition. As you can see at the bottom of that slide, Second John verse number 7 says something else that seems to be important at this point about these Antichrists. One chapter book, the book of 2 John, verse 7. For many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus is Christ is come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Twice in that verse, John uses the word deceiver as it relates to the work of the antichrists. These were people that were deceptive. 
Now, they may have thought they were doing what was truthful, but they were deceiving people. They weren't teaching again what was true. That sad saga, that idea of deception points us back to the devil, doesn't it? Doesn't Revelation 12 verse 9 remind us, He is a deceiver from the beginning and deceives the whole world. He's speaking about that great devil. Thus, who is behind the work of the Antichrist? Who is behind his efforts and who is behind their activities? It's none other than the devil. It's none other than Satan himself. And these Antichrists of whom we read in 2 John 7, it says again, these are Antichrist. As you can see also, these origin as apostate disciples brings us to something else that John says about the Antichrists. On this slide, you'll notice that something very careful is said in verse 22 of 1 John 2. It says, Who is a liar but he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist that denieth the Father and the Son. We recognize so easily from the writings of the Holy Scriptures that Jesus is Lord. He is Lord of all in the language of Acts 10 38. He is the one Paul so often referred to as our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In Ephesians chapter 4, there is one Lord, and we appreciate the greatness of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. But in this passage, we notice that something about these antichrists is described like this. Who is a liar but he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ? There were those in John's day who despite the fact that Jesus had only lived now, not many decades before, literally in the flesh, nonetheless there were those that denied that Jesus was the Christ. They claimed He was something else. Maybe He was a good teacher. Maybe He was merely no more than a good prophet. Perhaps He was no more than a specific person able to work some miracles much like Elijah of the Old Testament. But they denied that He was the Christ. They would not confess Him. They would not admit it. In that denial, John says two things. First, they're liars. These who do not believe that Jesus was the Christ are liars. And furthermore, this is one of the things descriptive of those antichrists of that first century. Some of these thoughts seem certainly important. The New Testament so often, even in the writings of John, highlight, of course, the greatness of our Savior. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God, and without Him was not anything made that was made. He came into His own, and His own received Him not. John 1, verses 1 to 5. In 1 John 5, verse 20, He is expressly called God. More than once in His own personal ministry, He confessed that He was the Messiah. You might recall that that woman at the well in Sychar, Though the Lord told her, you've had five husbands, and the man you're now with is not your husband, she was overwhelmed with the knowledge and power and majesty of this man. As that conversation continued, she said, I know that Messiah cometh, and Jesus said, The he that speaketh unto thee is he. Jesus confessed that he was the Messiah. He confessed to be the Son of God. And when individuals worshipped him, he never corrected them. And yet worship is always to be directed only to God, Matthew 14. As we see then the nature of the greatness of Christ, notice these antichrists deny that Jesus was the Christ. 
Does that not sound like some, perhaps in our world today, who still deny that Jesus was the Christ? Who continue to deny that He was the Son of God? Who continue to deny that He was the great anointed one from Old Testament days? There are still those who foolishly make that kind of statement. And yet we find here that in the first century, those who made such denial were called antichrists. Clearly, they were against Christ. They refused to acknowledge Him as the Son of God. They refused to bow in submission to Him. And as such, they cataloged themselves as the antichrists of that day. Many of these individuals we notice in this verse still described as those that deny and those that are liars. Maybe one final passage would be that Philippians 2 passage in which, isn't it fantastic, and almost numbing to the mind to listen again to what Paul had to say about the greatness of Christ and how it's unthinkable that someone might deny that He's the Christ. Noting only verse number 10, 10 and 11, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Did He not just previous to that say, every knee should bow of things in heaven? and things in earth, and things under the earth, surely our Lord, surely our Lord is worthy and deserving of all homage, reverence, and worship. And yet there were those in John's day that denied He was the Christ. Unthinkable, isn't it? Isn't it just as unthinkable that given the perfection of the Word that there are still those who refuse to acknowledge Him as Messiah and Lord? May we say in light of that very last lesson of the morning, that John says one other thing about these antichrists. You'll notice he very carefully says in chapter 4, verse number 3, And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of antichrist, whereof ye have heard that it should come, and even now already is it in the world." we noticed that those antichrists as well, some of them apparently denied that Jesus had come. Others denied that He was, in this latter point, He had come in the flesh. You'll notice some denied one thing and some seemingly denied other parts of it. In that fourth lesson earlier, we noted some that denied that He was the Christ. That is to say, they did not acknowledge His deity. On this latter point, some, although they might have acknowledged that, they denied He came in the flesh. They thought that that person here on earth that they had called Jesus, maybe He was a ghost, maybe He was a silhouette, maybe He was an apparition, but they denied He was literally in the flesh. John says those two are antichrists. Jesus was here in the flesh. He had flesh and bones and blood just like you and me. Doesn't that highlight the agony and pain that the cross brought to Him? If He literally wasn't flesh, then surely we should appreciate that that changes greatly the way we must look on the cross. Did He not feel the pain when they drove the nails into Him? Well, if He was only a spirit being, He didn't. But if He was flesh, He felt every agony as His nerves twinged when they drove those spikes into Him. If he was flesh, he felt it as that crown was patted upon his head. If he was flesh, he knew well what it was like to be nailed to that cross. 
No wonder the Hebrew writer emphasizes he was in the flesh. His body recoiled in the pain of that hour. And that pain leads us to verses like Hebrews 2 verse 14. For as much then are children partakers of flesh and blood, even so he himself likewise took part of the same, that he might destroy him that had the power of death. The Hebrew writer emphasized, yes, his flesh was to be appreciated. And for that reason, he is able to help and support all of us when we are tempted. Hebrews 2.18 Maybe in light of all of that, any person in that first century era that denied either directly or indirectly that Jesus was either in the flesh or God, they were the Antichrists. And today, the same principle apparently would hold true. Any person who either directly or indirectly does not confess in the nature of the Christ is not of the position of acknowledging Him as Lord and Christ. That person would fit the definition, especially if they were once faithful but then refused it. Those antichrists were a powerful and persuasive force in the first century era. How serious then is it for you and I to remain holy, loyal, and faithful to the teaching of our Savior? In conclusion to the lesson this morning, as we've studied this Antichrist, perhaps it's fair again to say that so much of what the human family teaches simply is not true when it comes to the Antichrist. It's often used to describe that premillennial teaching, but the Bible doesn't teach that either. We have learned these five things. Those antichrists were to appear in the last days, but we have been in those last days now for two millennia. We've also learned there were many of the antichrists even in John's day. It wasn't just one single soul individual. In the third place, we learned those antichrists were originally disciples, but they went out from the truth. Lastly, we learned those antichrists did not confess Jesus as Christ or did not, in fact, admit He came in the flesh. Today, where do you and I stand in our relationship to the Christ? Have you and I acknowledged Him? My friend, if you've never been baptized for the remission of your sins, why do you delay? Why do you wait? You realize that apart from baptism, there is no salvation. 1 Peter 3.21 If you believe in your heart that Jesus is the Christ, if you are willing to repent of the sins in your life, if you are more than delighted to think about confessing the greatness of His name, confession as John has described for us today, that you too can be immersed, baptized for the remission of your sins, and you can be entered into the character of the fold of God. If you haven't attended to that need in your life, why not today? If you have attended to it and you've known and tasted the goodness of the Word of God in the language of Hebrews 6 verse 4, but you have walked away from that truth, then if so, you're in no better position in many ways than those antichrists. You need to come back to your first love in the language of Revelation 2, 5. And if we could be of assistance to you by prayer, by praying to God for forgiveness and for strength on your behalf, let us do that today. If we could be of assistance in either of these measures and means, why not come before us today and let us help you? And to do that at once while together we stand and sing the selected song.